Welcome to another episode of The Vast Majority. I am Jack Ben, Deputy Editor Micah Utrecht. Uh, my sometimes co-host Megan Day is away this week because she is taking the week off to write a new preface to the, uh, the paperback version of our book, Bigger Than Bernie, which is going to be out in February. She's writing her portion of the, the preface, I should say. Not She's not doing the whole thing. We're both doing it. She's doing... <laughs> we, we went over this on a previous episode. Uh, but while Megan is out, we are joined uh, by the woman who really makes this podcast work, folks. The woman behind the ones and twos. Uh, you sometimes hear her reading some ads or being referenced, but you never hear her actual voice on the podcast. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about our producer, Sarah Hurd. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Micah. Everyone can't see it, but I am completely blushing and uh, very embarrassed to, <laughs> to be given so much credit for the podcast that is really mostly just you and uh, often Megan. Well, uh, I was very happy to have you join the conversation that we have today, which we'll get into in a second. Uh, not not just because I wanted a third person on this conversation, but because you are a you're an established like podcaster and a public presenter in your own right. Uh, can you just tell people who you are and uh, what you do? Yeah, yeah. I am uh, locally in Chicago referred to as Sarah from the emails because I am the comms coordinator and uh, founding co-host of uh, the Midwest Socialist podcast. And the Midwest Socialist, can you just explain what that is, the the, uh, podcast and the publication for those outside of uh, the kind of Midwestern Socialist DSA world? Yeah, Midwest Socialist is a podcast and uh, online publication uh, that is a project of the Chicago Democratic Socialists of America that have now hit 3,000 members, which is very exciting uh, for me as an officer in the organization. And we just pretty much publish everything that is too cool and radical for the mainstream media to publish. People should check yeah, it out. They, they don't want to touch these issues that you're... Yeah, you're yeah, like like listicles, like top 10 uh, leftist horror films. They're too scared to publish it, but we do it. <laughs> And as you mentioned, you're also an officer in the Chicago Democratic Socialists of America and the communications coordinator, right? Yes. I'm keeping in, keeping busy. I'm, I'm insisting that you actually talk about <laughs> yourself here. So I was grateful for you uh, joining a conversation with uh, Carlos Ramirez Rosa, who is a returning guest to this podcast, I believe the third time. Yes, friend of the pod, Carlos Rosa. Yeah, that's right. Uh, he is the city council member representing Chicago's 35th ward. He is one of the six members of the Democratic Socialists of America who is on Chicago's city council. Uh, and we had a conversation with him mostly about the uh, national elections, uh, covering everything that, is, that has happened there, covering the response that we have heard from the mainstream establishment centrist Democratic Party blaming the uh, Democrats' poor election results on uh, big, bad, evil socialists like us, uh, as well as how the uh, election has shaken out in terms of uh, Latino votes in in the country, uh, black votes, uh, people, working class votes, um, you know, why things turned out the way they did and what that might say about uh, American politics for the long term. Yeah, and he uh, gives us a little bit of uh, what to expect from the Biden administration and what we as socialists need to kind of orient ourselves towards in the coming years, which I think is really helpful. 
Yeah, so uh, you can read some of the past interviews that I have done with Carlos on the Jacobin website. Uh, you can also read a column that I reference in our discussion uh, that I wrote for Novara Media this week, the UK left outlet, about all of this discourse around socialists being responsible for... I, I, I thought it was so funny that like these centrist Democrats are blaming socialists for their poor performance when they all worked so hard to run away from socialism as far as they possibly could. Uh, we have a, a president-elect now, Joe Biden, who said during the primary that if Medicare for All crossed his desk, passed by the Senate and the House, he would veto it. But, Micah, why why would they take responsibility for anything when they could just scapegoat the left? They've been doing this for decades. I, I guess that's what we're here for, is to be, uh, to be beat up on. But uh, you know what? We're gonna take a stand against this <laughs> against this absurd revisionism today. Both it in starts. Yeah, exactly in my Novara column and in our conversation with Carlos Rosa. So uh, thank you, Sarah, for uh, co-hosting. And here is our conversation with Carlos. Carlos, welcome back to the vast majority. Thank you for having me. All right, so let's just start with the basics. What are your kind of general top line reactions now that the dust has settled a little bit on the national elections? Well, there's no doubt in my mind that Joe Biden was elected with the support of tens of millions of progressives, people who were mo motivated by the movement for black lives, uh, people who came out because they want things like Medicare for all, because they wanted to reject Trump and Trumpism. Um, so the Exit polling uh, and just kind of general sentiment of people that I've spoken to is pretty clear that had it not been for millennials that turned out in record numbers, had it not been for progressives that turned out in record numbers, uh, Donald Trump would not have been defeated uh, the way that he was on November 3rd. Now, what you are saying, of course, is in pretty much direct contradiction to much of what we have heard from some of the Democratic Party leadership in the weeks since the election where we've heard I mean, what you just said is that, like, uh, the base of the Democratic Party got Joe Biden elected. The people were excited about uh, issues like, uh, you know, progressive issues generally, basically. But what we've heard from the, you know, the Abigail Spanberger, the, uh, the, uh, the first term House member from Virginia and from Nancy Pelosi and Jim Clyburn in South Carolina and elsewhere is that, uh, that that's not the case, that actually those progressive issues were a real loser for the Democrats in this elections, and now they're arguing to run as far away from them as possible. Well, look, we know that corporate Democrats have their line. And corporate Democrats say, we must run to the center, we must shower in corporate cash, and only through running as centrist, center-right candidates or quote-unquote moderates, only through being able to get record contributions from big corporations, will we be able to win elections? That's just not true. Um, if you look at Claire McCaskill, you know, she was one of the corporate Democrats that was bashing the progressive wing of the party after November 3rd. Uh, she followed her playbook, right? She ran from the center as a moderate. She took big campaign, uh, campaign contributions from corporations and she lost re-election. Uh, if you look at the Democrats that did not support uh, the uh, Medicare for all, they lost re-election. Every single House Democrat that supported Medicare for all won re-election. 
Um, but ultimately, you also have to look at things like the $15 minimum wage in Florida, which received more votes than Trump, that received more votes than Biden. Uh, you have to look at things like um, in June, at the height of the movement for black lives, you saw a record number of young people registering to vote. So it's very clear that there would be no Joe Biden presidency without tens of millions of progressives coming out to vote in record numbers. It's just irrefutable. Um, now, is it true that perhaps some moderates that may have voted Republican in the past crossed over and voted for Biden? Um, perhaps that happened uh, to some degree, but ultimately there would be no Biden presidency without progressive voters turning out in record numbers, primarily to reject Trump. Yeah, Carlos, can we talk a little bit more about Florida? Because I think that's such a great example of uh, the messaging that actually works on voters. So this $15 minimum wage passed overwhelmingly. Uh, Biden lost uh, by a pretty significant number. They were able to call it that night. Who, do, who are these voters that are so pro $15 minimum wage and anti Joe Biden? Um, what was it about the Biden campaign that you think didn't appeal to them? And how do we change our tactics to be more in line with with what captures those kinds of people? You know, Sarah, it's kind of a little bit early uh to try and really figure out what happened this election, um, in part because one, new people came out and voted for the first time in record numbers. Um, we had record turnout. Uh, and in addition to that, because of the record number of mail-in ballots and early voters, the exit polling is a little bit different this year. So it's gonna take us some weeks, if not months, if not potentially even years, to really be able to sort through everything that happened and really figure out precisely. But based upon the initial numbers that we're kind of looking at right now, we know that there are what I would call populist voters. Um, voters who want to see an economy that works for working people and not just big and powerful corporations, people that are fed up with the outsourcing of jobs, people that are fed up with the corruption in Washington, D.C. Um, and I think that those voters came out uh, and voted for things like a $15 minimum wage because they understood that it would help them and it would help their families. Um, but for whatever reason, in some instances, we're not attracted to Joe Biden. Right. Perhaps they perceive Biden as an extension of kind of this corrupt Washington, D.C. consensus that has been screwing over their and their, them and their families for years. Um, and for whatever reason, saw Trump as this outsider uh, who uh, was taking on, uh, you know, these corrupt trade deals and who was taking on the swamp. Obviously, I know that Trump is a swamp creature himself uh, who is corrupt to his core. Um, but I think he was able to convince a lot of people that he was this populist that was looking out for the little guy. Um, primarily white rural voters um, very much seem to be swayed by that message. Um, there's some research going back into 2016 that showed that uh, the biggest indicator for Obama to Trump crossover voters. So these were people that voted for Obama in 08 and 12 and then voted for Trump in 16 was not racial animus, right, which makes sense, right? If you voted for Obama in 08 and 12, you're probably not primarily voted by racial animus when voting. Um, but the biggest indicator was really how they felt about their standing in the world, in the global economy. Um, and so I think folks at that point in time in 2016 were looking at Hillary, who was saying, you know, America's already great, you know, we're going to continue and, and stay the course and then looked at Trump, who said, you know, the globalists and the elites have taken away your jobs. Um, and that resonated with them. And, and the polling shows that those voters that crossed over from Obama 
to Trump in 16 uh, stuck with Trump in 2020. Um, and I think, again, it, a lot of that has to do with his posturing and the way that he was able to sell himself to some people, despite us knowing that this is not true. He was able to sell himself as a populist, as an outsider that was taking on the Washington establishment that had outsourced jobs uh, and decimated the middle class in America. I wonder what you think about an argument that I've made in print in a recent piece in Novara and other people have argued that that disconnect indicates that there is this real hunger for these kind of progressive economic policies. And there's a lot of polling data that shows that that was a huge motivating factor for a lot of people in this election. Um, but what was on offer was basically Trump saying, I'm not going to make you continue these lockdowns or even wear a mask or anything, uh, which we know is insane and suicidal for multiple reasons. But then on the other hand, you have Biden, who thankfully understands quite quite a bit more the severity of the crisis, is not going to say don't wear a mask or anything like that, but but did not campaign on a really robust economic relief platform. He didn't say central to his campaign that that's what he was going to do once he got to the White House. And so some people, some voters associated him with saying, well, Biden is, is going to, you know, respect the science more and do more lockdowns. But without that that economic uh, aid component, uh, that's going to mean just more hurting when it comes to uh, their pocketbooks. And so Trump was like perversely able to portray himself as more of the candidate who was arguing for that kind of economic aid just because he wants to open up the economy, right? E even though that's going to send enormous numbers of people to their deaths, uh, people thought, well, you know, in the absence of anything robust when it comes to economic aid, I'll just I'll roll the dice with Trump. Uh, it wasn't enough to get to push Trump over the over the top, obviously, but but uh, I think there was a large number of people who voted on that basis who did vote for Trump. And I wonder what you think about that and what that says about what Biden should do once he takes office in January. Well, you know, I, I think it just shows kind of how neoliberalism and the you know, the, the last several decades have so eroded the way in which we as Americans think of government and think about what government can do. Um, you know, in, in the 1940s, we were told that to be patriotic, to do our part, uh, was to recycle, was to grow victory gardens, um, right? And, and now we're being told, hey, go help the economy, go consume more, right? Um, in Chicago, our neoliberal mayor told us to pick our 10 favorite restaurants to go uh, eat out as if Americans were not already, you know, eating out to the extent which they possibly could. Um, and that that was is what we needed to do in this moment to save the economy. So, yeah, I, I think that neither candidate and neither party um, has succeeded in being able to put forward uh, a promise of a governmental response that would be appropriate to help people in this moment. There is so much suffering uh, in our communities right now. Um, in the first several weeks of the shutdown, my office received thousands of calls from people who needed assistance with food, who pe with people who had lost their jobs and were seeking to be able to apply for unemployment. Um, we know that people are in very precarious living situations. They're unable to pay their mortgages. They're unable to pay rent. Um, people are feeling that pain. And absent a robust government response, which they need, they're going to turn to whatever makes sense. Um, and what makes sense in that context is we'll reopen the economy, get back to work, allow people to, you know, take on that job as a waiter or as a server. You know, if you're an Uber or Lyft driver, uh, you need people to be going out and going on trips and going into their offices. 
Um, I think that also helps us explain why uh, in California, the referendum around classifying Uber and Lyft drivers as workers was a non-starter and ended up losing. Obviously, we know that there's, you know, the massive amounts of money that were spent by companies like Uber and Lyft. Um, but also we know that so many workers uh, in precarious situations now depend on these kind of jobs. So if you're being told this message of, you know, if you pass this regulation, you're going to lose that job, your job, um, that suddenly seems like the logical choice, right, to reject that regulation. Um, so even when, when certain progressive options failed on the ballot, I think they failed for progressive reasons because workers were voting in a way in which they understood their class interests to line up with their vote. I saw that here in the state of Illinois with the fair tax, not to, not to jump ahead of ourselves, but um, you know, in terms of the fair tax, which was uh, a question put before the voters of Illinois, whether or not we want a graduated income tax because our state constitution dictates that we have to have a flat income tax. Um, I had voters coming up to me on election day who knew who I am, knew my stances, and were like, yeah, we're rejecting the fair tax, right? Like, no more taxing the little guy, no more hurting middle class families. Um, and so they really bought the propaganda from the rich and from the elite uh, that this was an assault on working families. And so they showed up on election day to vote against the fair tax because they thought they were voting for working families. I knew that the fair tax was in serious trouble when my downstairs neighbor, who's a Mason, who was obsessed with Bernie Sanders, loved Bernie Sanders, watches the Young Turks and all kinds of progressive media. I started talking to him one day about the fair tax and he was like, oh yeah, right? That's that thing that like the Republicans are trying to pass. And I was like, <laughs> oh no, like this guy is a Bernie voter who thinks that the fair tax is a giveaway to the rich when it's the exact opposite. Right. It's a super interesting example of specifically in Illinois, the relationship that people have to their Democrat government because a lot of the messaging that worked really well against fair tax was saying do you really want mike madigan you know like the this shadowy guy who's pulling the strings to to be able to get more money um and the the democrats and i think this circles back to kind of some of the problems that we saw the democratic party um coming up against in florida is that they they don't have the organizing skills or the interest in actually engaging volunteers that might be excited about doing that work effectively because they're so obsessed with like, well, this is what, um, you know, these consultants told us. And, you know, we spent $5 million on this agency that said treat voters like they're stupid and just, you know, yeah. And even the name fair tax, I think, is an example of that, that it doesn't it doesn't trust people to understand uh, what you're actually trying to put forward. It was such a bad campaign. I mean, it was uh, to your point, Sarah, it was. I mean, the, the team that was hired to usher through the fair tax, I think they spent more money on billboards and yard signs than on effective messaging through ads and mailers. Um, as you pointed out, everything from the name uh, to the way in which it was communicated as to why we should vote for this, vote yes for fairness. Um, you know, I think if they had done a more class warfare-esque campaign where they had shown Ken Griffin's houses and they had said, hey, look, here's your house, right? Or here's your apartment. And here are all the houses that Ken Griffin owns across the United States and across the globe. And he pays the same exact tax rate as you. And he is now spending $50 million to make sure that it stays that way. Um, I, I, I don't think that a lot of Democrats want to engage in that type of antagonistic class warfare messaging. Um, what I've been told by some of my corporate Democrat friends who work as operatives is, well, you know, Carlos, the issue is, is that we need rich people's money to be able to run effective campaigns. And if we insult rich people, 
if we call them the enemy, uh, if we engage in this antagonistic messaging, then they're going to go to the Republicans and give them the cash that we need. Um, so they kind of structured it as this prisoner's dilemma. Of course, I think that Bernie Sanders showed that there's another way, which is, you know, you can fundraise from the grassroots. Uh, here in the city of Chicago, the Democratic Socialist aldermen uh, have said no to taking money from big campaign, uh, from, from developers uh, who are generally some of the biggest campaign contributors to local elected officials in the city of Chicago. Um, so there is another way. You just have to be willing to really engage in class struggle. Um, and that's something that corporate Democrats have sort of ingrained into themselves to run away from. Uh, Sarah mentioned uh, Mike Madigan, who is, uh, for those who are not in Illinois, the sort of like central power player in the Illinois state legislature, uh, as well as Ken Griffin, who is Illinois' uh, richest man. And one of the things that was very depressing about this fair tax initiative, as much as we all wanted it to pass, is that Ken Griffin was shelling out serious money against this campaign, which is to be expected, unfortunately, at this point in American politics, when you try to push something that rich people don't like, they will spend millions of dollars to try to destroy it. But then uh, our governor, J.B. Pritzker, who is himself a billionaire, was also one of the main funders for the fair tax campaign. And at least, I guess, if you're, if you're going to be using your ill-gotten gains for something, you should be using that to try to get a, a, a tax the rich proposal passed in the state of Illinois. But, like, we were, we were, you know, fighting for this fair tax proposal, this tax the rich proposal, that was essentially a battle between two billionaires. And it was kind of a bleak view <laughs> of what American politics is going to look like. Like, which billionaire will win? when they face off against each other in the public sphere. It was sad. And, and ultimately, J.B. Pritzker did not dole out all the cash that he committed to. So there was some grumbling amongst the Illinois Democratic Party to say, hey, J.B., you promised tens of millions of more dollars for the fair tax campaign. Um, it's also just kind of sad to think that the $50, $60 million that Ken Griffin ended up spending, that was an investment for him. Uh, it made sense for him economically to dump all that money into the race. Uh, in order to avoid being taxed more. So just just to have that sense to say, wow, like that's how much this is worth to Ken Griffin. Um, imagine just how much more he would have paid in taxes, um, which is the money that we so desperately need in our communities to, to fund our programs uh, had this passed. So um, it, is, it is disappointing. Uh, but despite all that, we saw 70 in some places of Chicago, 80% of voters in the city of Chicago accept uh, the fair tax. And so that's really exciting to see that despite this poorly run yes campaign, uh, a ton of Chicagoans, the vast majority of Chicagoans still came out and said yes to the fair tax, yes to graduated income tax. Um, it's sad to see, I was in Southern Illinois in the most Southern part of the state uh, and they had all these say no to the progressive tax signs everywhere. Um, and it was just really sad because that area was extremely impoverished um, they benefit from uh, re re wealth redistribution vis-a-vis -vis taxation. Uh, they desperately need, uh, you know, the millionaires and billionaires in Chicago land to be taxed more so that that wealth can then be redistributed to places in rural southern Illinois. Um, and it, there was just a lot of misinformation. So I don't think that we can view the rejection of the fair tax as um, a rejection of progressive policies or progressive taxation. As I said, and as I think we've noted, your downstairs neighbor, people that I met on election day, viewed their vote uh, on the fair tax against it as, you know, standing with working families and standing up to, you know, the rich and powerful who were not looking out for them. 
So, Carlos, you kind of brought up the difference between how people voted in the city of Chicago and how people voted downstate. I'm really interested in kind of in terms of the strategies that we're looking at going forward. Um, should we be putting a lot of energy towards trying to get our message across in some of these more rural areas? Or should we kind of look at that map that was going around after Election Day that showed that like the people are in the cities, so it doesn't matter as much how like some of these rural places vote because their populations are so much smaller. Um, can we afford to kind of seed some of those rural areas or do we need to do we need to be better as a movement about messaging to those people that like this this kind of tax the rich rhetoric like it's it's for you We're we're doing this with you in mind as well. Yeah, you know, if if indeed it is true that, you know, 2020 further illustrated the urban rural divide. Um, and that we saw, you know, working poor rural white voters go to Trump. And we saw working poor urban black and Latino and white voters go to um, Biden. We need to find a way as socialists to bridge that divide. Because the only way that we're going to have a winning electoral project, the only way that we're going to have a winning working class multiracial movement is if we are able to bring together people from different backgrounds, from different parts of the country. Um, I think there's no question, if you look at the election results, even at the aldermanic level, where we elected six Democratic Socialists to the City Council in 2019 here in the city of Chicago, if you look at the success that uh, NYC DSA has had at electing people to uh, the State House from the city of New York, if you look at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, and how she won re-election and has been able to just raise so much money and in turn help so many other wonderful progressives win election. Um, yes, we know that the big cities are progressive, um, but we need to find a way to bridge that divide. Uh, and that's going to require reaching out. That's going to require uh, conversing with people, hearing what they have to say, meeting them where they're at. Uh, and figuring out where are those shared points of struggle. Um, obviously, I think it's very clear that a lot of rural white voters that voted for Trump are upset about the loss of jobs, are upset about the lack of opportunity. Uh, you know, it is impossible uh, to enter the American middle class, uh, whatever that may mean now for so many people. So I, I think that, um, you know, we, we, we can find ways to make common cause um, at the same time, we also do have to recognize, yes, there are some horrible racist people that work for Trump, that voted for Trump. Obviously, we're not going to make common cause with racists, but I think we need to figure out who are the people that we can reach and who we can bring into coalition for a multiracial working class movement uh, that is taking on uh, the oligarchs and the rich and powerful special interests in the halls of power. Yeah, I think that one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot in terms of building a multicultural movement is the it seems like there's a significant divide um, in terms of age, in terms of the way young black people are voting versus the way older black folks are voting. Um, and I think there's something kind of similar in the Latinx community. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on like there's there's this age divide that's going on as well. Yeah. You know, I, I've knocked doors for Bernie Sanders um, in Iowa, throughout Chicagoland. And I met so many older Latinos who said, I'm voting for Bernie Sanders because my daughter, because my son told me to. <laughs> um, and so I will say that I, I think that, you know, the, the woke young Latinx voters um, are able to get to their parents. I also met some older Latino voters who said that they were voting for Trump because Biden had some weird thing going on with the cartels. 
And I didn't engage with them more because I was like, this is crazy. But I'm assuming they have some son that's like on the internet all day and somehow like came across some like conspiracy theory stuff and then like told his mom and dad, like, by the way, Biden is like with the cartels. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that just sounds like a Mexican American version of like weird Q type. Yes, exactly. I'm like, this is some QAnon adjacent conspiracy theory. Well, that's a real thing in Florida, right? Like they're one of the reasons that Biden lost Florida was that the campaign had no answer to Spanish language QAnon, like Internet content. Oh, my God. That was a, that was a part of it. That. Yeah. Wow. I can't believe that there are people. I mean, I. I I believe it, but there are people translating QAnon conspiracy theories into like I wonder how many total languages the QAnon conspiracy theory content has been. Oh, let's not talk about that. That's going to get me too depressed if we go down that rabbit it's, hole. It's, it's probably it's probably in more languages than Jacobin at this point. Let's be honest. <laughs> Well, since we're talking about uh, Spanish language issues and and uh, Latinx voters, um, you know, what what do you think about how those uh, those numbers have shaken out? I mean, obviously there has been this discussion that has happened after the you know the discussion about Florida, for example, and about like Cuban American voters and. Miami and how they uh, they didn't break for Biden in the way that the, that campaign was hoping for. But th- that's there there are a million examples of this all throughout the country it's not just right-wing cuban americans it's not just right-wing venezuelan americans i mean there's like there's there's a big discussion happening right now about uh the the share of latin american immigrants or or the the descendants of latin american immigrants how they voted in this election so what's your take on on how those numbers are shaking out well you know um folks should understand that latinidad much like socialism is a political project um you know in Latin America, uh, Latino leaders began to build this construct of a shared identity, um, first to take on Spanish imperialism. Uh, in the U.S., Latinidad has been extremely important in the city of Chicago. In the 70s, we saw Mexicans and Puerto Ricans organizing together, viewing themselves as Latinos, taking access to jobs, to housing. Um, so as a Latino, I'm committed to Latinidad. But it's also important that we be precise with our language um, and that if we're talking about Cuban-American voters in Florida and what it is that they're doing, we shouldn't be talking about Latino voters, right? We should be precise. Um, and I think a lot of folks in the media learned that this year, right? That there are differences between Mexican-American voters in Chicago and in LA versus Cuban-American voters in Florida. If you had told me that Cuban-American voters in Florida were going to prefer a right-wing would-be dictator um, over someone who they viewed as socialists, I'd be like, yeah, duh. <laughs> um, so I'm not quite sure why the Biden campaign thought they were going to make inroads there. Um, a lot of these folks supported Batista, right? They still pine for the days of Batista. Um, there are differences, however, amongst the older Cuban-American voters and younger Cuban-American voters. Uh, younger Cuban-American voters are voting Democrat in increasing numbers. Um, but But yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, Biden tried to reach those Cuban-American voters by attacking the Bolivarian project in Venezuela, by trying to distance himself from Fidel Castro. Um, And for whatever reason, they just did not buy it. There are just going to be some Cuban-American voters that I don't think we're going to be able to reach um, because of their history. Uh, Many of them fought to support a right-wing regime in (laughs) Uh, Cuba. Some of them have been linked to terrorist 
acts to support right-wing governments uh, throughout Latin America. So I just don't see us winning those voters over to socialism or over to progressive candidates anytime soon. Well, I think that is correct, but I also think that there was there seems to be more in the numbers that are emerging that is beyond just like whether or not Cuban Americans in South Florida are, are voting for Democrats. I mean, I've heard of uh, you know Mexican Americans are in Texas near the border, who, like voting for Trump in larger numbers that were than that were expected. And uh, the same is true in in many uh, uh, mostly black urban districts in in a number of places throughout America in which the black vote did not come out for uh, Trump or for, excuse me, for Biden as much as as was uh, expected or would be expected. And I I have to wonder some of this, if it's not a a product of, I mean, a couple things. I mean, one, the rightward turn in the Democratic Party over the last several decades uh, in which um, people, I mean, you know, black people are still voting in overwhelming numbers for Democrats, but there has been a kind of increase in the the discourse around like Democrats are really taking the black vote for granted. I feel like we hear a, a new version of that discourse every election cycle. Mm. Um, and it seemed to, to work for some uh, y- uh, younger black voters. I mean, just like we were talking about how younger black voters, uh, for example, went for Bernie in higher numbers than their parents or grandparents. It also seems to be the case that uh, younger black voters might have gone for Trump in higher numbers. So that sort of like rock solid coalition, uh, a piece of the, the Democratic coalition may be changing in some ways. And, you know, this is just anecdotal, but uh, I was in Iowa knocking doors for Bernie Sanders during the primary, and I remember I got I, I speak Spanish, and so I was on Spanish speaking turf, and I got one guy on the doors who was a Mexican immigrant, uh, who was voting for Trump, and he said he was voting for Trump because Joe Biden was the vice president of Barack Obama, who deported more immigrants than any other president in American history. Now, obviously, I'm trying to have a argument about i was like oh so that's what you're concerned about you so you're gonna vote for the most xenophobic president (laughs) in recent history but like he didn't care he was just like no that's what they did and so i'm not gonna vote for the this this party and it's not fully rational but it is a kind of chickens coming home to roost type situation for the democrats in that they seem to have taken so much of the working class vote and the black vote and the brown vote for granted uh that there may be some movement uh in in parts of that uh in that coalition that that, pe- that some black and brown voters are, are maybe starting to get tired of. yeah i mean you know there are some political scientists and some pollsters who feel that when all is said and done and all the votes are counted and we're able to really dig into the exit polls and the polling data that trump's uh, support amongst black voters and latino voters will have been overstated so we don't know in this moment, you know, exactly what happened there. I do think, however, that the polls are kind of showing a shift. I do think that Trump did see increased support amongst black voters and Latino voters. Um, There was an entire organizing project uh, called ADOS, American Descendants of Slaves, that uh, really pushed uh, Democrats to say, you know, that what you were just talking about, Micah, right? Uh, Are the Democrats taking the black vote for uh, for, for granted? Um, I think that also abortion continues to play a major issue amongst uh, older Latino voters, particularly Catholic voters. And of course, Trump just, uh, you know, put a Catholic on the Supreme Court who seemingly is dedicated to rolling back reproductive rights. So there's a lot of different reasons why people show up to vote on Election Day. But I think 
what we really need to understand is that trying to simplify the American election down to it was a choice between a decent person and a liar, right, which seemed to kind of be the main thrust of Biden's argument. I'm going to restore decency and he just tells lies or to try and, you know, boil it down to, you know, this is racism versus, you know, not being racist really misses the mark when trying to understand why voters make the choices that they do. I have no doubt in my mind that there were probably some working poor voters, whether they be black or Latino or white, that showed up and voted for Donald Trump because he gave them a $1,200 check. And for many people, that was the most meaningful government support that they had gotten in a decade or more. So, um, you know, I, I think, though, that we, what we do have to understand as, as socialists is that our task is to figure out how do we unite this divided nation? Not to be cliche, but it is a very much divided nation. And there were people that were voting based upon their QAnon conspiracy theories. There were people voting based upon how they felt about coronavirus and whether or not we should have a second lockdown. There were people voting based upon abortion. There were people voting based upon globalization and the globalists. How do we weave together a movement uh, out of a very fractured nation uh, that has a class conscious to it uh, and that understands the shared struggle and fight that we are in against uh, the oligarchs and the capitalist class. So, Carlos, I think that is a great question. Um, and one of the things that I think we're running into now is how do we try to do that on the terrain of a Biden presidency? Like, Because I think Trump makes very clear, like, this is what we're up against in a way that Biden kind of obfuscates that a little bit. And I'm curious what you think about, should we be trying to get our folks into the Biden administration or should we be kind of posed like as quickly as possible, um, staking this ground of of being opposition uh, to whatever the Biden administration is going to try and possibly fail to do during uh, their four, next four years? Yeah, I don't think Biden is going to really put any progressives in his administration uh, at least not in any positions in which they could make a real impact as it relates to policy. Um, I think Bernie Sanders should be Secretary of Labor if he wants to be Secretary of Labor, and that's because Bernie Sanders has earned it. The man went out there and dropped out of the race and worked hard as hell to deliver key states to Joe Biden. Um, and so absolutely, if Bernie Sanders wants to be Secretary of Labor, he should be Secretary of Labor. Um, but beyond that, I mean, I think really we in this moment have to focus on um, what have been our strengths? And I think it's pretty clear that the social movements that have taken to the streets over the last several years, beginning in Obama's administration, um, that they have really fueled so many progressive policy victories. They have helped fuel so many progressive electoral victories. That's our strength. So how can we bring all of these movements together and keep us on the offense? Um, one of the first places I think we need to start is with the Biden Sanders Unity Task Force recommendations. There was a lot of good stuff in there that AOC helped craft, that Bernie Sanders helped craft. Let's make sure that the Biden administration moves on those policies as it relates to climate change, as it relates to immigration. Um, but then let's go beyond that. We know that Medicare for all is extremely popular. We know that a Green New Deal, 86% of Democrats support a Green New Deal. 80% of Americans support a Green New Deal. So we know that these policies are extremely popular. And I think that's where we have to start. Let's continue to keep our social movements out in the streets. And let's continue to have that coordination between progressive labor, between social movements, and between progressive elected officials. 
Uh, I think that's the winning team and the winning recipe um, to continue to push against uh, the fascism of the right, um, but also push the Democrats to be better and abandon the neoliberalism uh, that has so engulfed the party. Um, really, we're trying to save the Democrats from themselves in some ways, um, because if uh, Biden returns back to that neoliberal centrist governance uh, that got us where we are today, I think we will see Democrats swept out of office in 2022 and most certainly in 2024. Yeah, on that question, Carlos, we published a piece today in Jacobin making the case that, uh, as we were saying, you know, Biden really did not run on any kind of substantive economic relief agenda when he was running for president. Um, but it was saying that we that's obviously one of, the, one of the things that's most desperately needed right now in America. And uh, the article uh, by Andrew Richner was making the case uh, that uh, number one, uh, robust economic relief should be a priority. Number two, uh, obviously expanding health care in key ways. We're probably not going to get a Medicare for all bill under a Joe Biden, but we can push to expand health care in, in, in important ways and also ensure that coronavirus treatment is covered by the government and it is not bankrupting people who have to uh, get treated for having it or for any other aspect of, of trying not to get it. And then number three, uh, pushing for all of this to be paid for by taxing the rich. Uh, so that was one proposal for what the, the left should be arguing for in the early days of a, of a Biden administration. Do you agree with that? And do you think there's anything else that should be on there? Uh, sounds great to me. <laughs> it's a very uh, ambitious agenda, given the way that uh, corporate Democrats and Republicans have approached this crisis thus far. Um, people need relief. They need it. I mean, if you go out and talk to folks, if you go to the food pantries in your community, you will just see how desperate people are right now in this moment. Um, and I think that's why there's also so many people, as we've talked about before, that are fearing a second lockdown. Um, because they know the economic impact that we'll have and they don't feel that the federal government is going to provide the support that they need. So I think you're absolutely right. At the top of the Biden agenda and at the top of the agenda for progressives needs to be getting substantial, meaningful relief to working poor people and to unemployed people in this moment during this crisis. Um, and and I think that that there are things within the Biden-Sanders Unity Task Force recommendations that kind of do speak to that. Um, one of the things that's really shocked me is that President Biden signed off on uh, having a $15 living wage at the national level and eliminating the tip penalty. So you would every single worker would make $15 with tips on top, which we know would help alleviate poverty, especially for so many uh, low-wage uh, black and Latino workers in the service industry, in the restaurant industry. Um, so that's definitely one of the things that I think we definitely have to push the Biden administration uh, to act on. Um, I also think that we need to have Biden and the Democrats in the House, assuming that Democrats don't take the Senate, um, push very aggressive policies and put the failure of those economic policies, uh, the failure of those policies to pass on the Republican Senate to make the case that in 2022, if we want to see the meaningful economic relief and programs that our nation needs, you're going to have to elect more progressive Democrats that are committed to acting on that agenda. Um, I'm not too hopeful that the Biden administration and Nancy Pelosi are going to do what they need to do. 
Um, but I think that's why it's incumbent upon our social movements to kind of uh, top from the bottom, so to speak, right? We have to put forward that agenda uh, from the bottom, from the grassroots. The great thing is, is that we have phenomenal communicators and leaders in the halls of Congress, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, like the other members of the squad, which is now growing, uh, that can use their bully pulpits to help uh, elevate uh, and put forward those messages. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Carlos, you are a an alderman in the city of Chicago. I think we've been talking a lot about the the pandemic and the response to it. Um, on the local level, I think we've got an almost like mini Biden uh, as our as our mayor who talks kind of you know whatever the big game about like you know racial justice and equality blah blah blah. But then in her recent budget address, gave a shout out to Jamie Dimon and Pepsi and like is is clearly very committed to corporate interests. Um, how do you feel like uh, the local response to the coronavirus has been? I feel like we we're seeing numbers of like 15% positive uh, test results lately. And what what can we do here to to have to hold some sort of accountability to to the people that are in charge you know it's horrible to think that uh chicago and illinois at this moment in the midwest are the epicenter of covid in the united states um and the u.s continues to be the epicenter of covid in the world um our local government has totally failed to provide any meaningful relief uh in this moment of crisis where working families are suffering the mayor has decided to balance the budget through austerity, through layoffs, um, which will harm middle class uh, and working people who rely upon that uh, government service job to be able to provide for their families and pay the mortgage. Um, but she's turning to things like more red light camera tickets. She's turning to things like raising property taxes. I had 400 people in my district last year lose their homes because they couldn't pay their property taxes. Um, this mayor has totally refused to pass policies that don't require a single cent, but that would bring some justice and some relief to renters. Um, her response to this pandemic has been, Chicagoans, go pick your 10 favorite restaurants and go eat at them right now um, so that you can inject money into the hands of small business owners and, and servers and so that we can get some of that restaurant revenue. Um, I think that our mayor is totally disconnected from what's happening in our neighborhoods right now. Um, but in the absence of a mayor who has not gotten it, uh, or rather I should say in the absence of a mayor that has failed to provide the support that our families need, we have seen democratic socialists come together to help feed people in communities. We have seen mutual aid networks form uh, with the support of the democratic socialists in office. We have seen people come together and model that solidarity that we know we're going to need and we're gonna need a lot of if we're going to change the situation in this city and in this country. Um, so even in the darkest of times, right, you can see the stars and you can sort of see uh, the day that is to come. And I most definitely see that right now in the city of Chicago. Uh, people are fighting. Uh, tens of thousands of people have taken to the streets to say Black Lives Matter. Let's end racist policing in the city of Chicago. Thousands of people have come together to feed each other through uh, mutual aid networks and to stand in solidarity with workers that are on strike and with workers that are forming unions. There are beautiful things happening right now in the city of Chicago. So I'm less concerned about Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Obviously, she's going to continue to be a problem uh, until we defeat her, hopefully, in 2023. Um, but um, let's continue to organize. Let's continue to build. 
Uh, and I, I'm hopeful right now for the American left um, because uh, one, we got Trump out of office, we rejected fascism, and two, uh, just record numbers of people are out in the streets, and I think we're beginning to see the formulation of a mass people's movement. You can tell this man is an elected official because he goes through the very sober stuff, but he knows not <laughs> to leave his audience on a dour note. He knows to lift our spirits right at the end. And I only speak the truth, Micah. <laughs> Alderman Carlos Rosa, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you all. Bye-bye. The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd. You can always reach out to us at vastmajoritypodcast at gmail.com. And please, if you are not already subscribed to Jacobin, subscribe to our print issue or you can get an online version at jacobinmag.com slash subscribe.